What's up, friends? Welcome back to Hot Blooded. I'm your host, Kat Jones. And if you're not familiar, this is my podcast where I talk to people about love, rock and roll, and whatever else comes up along the way. Things have been a little insane in my life lately as I bounce around the West Coast. So this is the first episode that I've put out since February. Um, I'm currently hanging out in Portland, Oregon for a while. And it's my hope that as things begin to settle down a little bit with a few things in my life, I'll have time to put episodes out a little more regularly. Um, As always, thank you so much for your patience and your continued listening a year after we started this podcast, which is crazy to say. Anyway, this episode is a very special one because it's the first time I've ever had someone on the show who is not a musician. His name is Dr. Eric Sprankel. And he's the Associate Professor of Clinical Psychology and the Co-Director of Sexuality Studies at Minnesota State University. He's also a licensed clinical psychologist and sex therapist. But what sets Eric apart from your average psychologist or sex educator is that he's also a lifelong fan of heavy metal and horror. And he's open and vocal about his involvement, support, and even professional research of Satanism much to the chagrin of Christians who find him on social media or, say, people like Fox News commentators who occasionally discover things he says on social media about sex, gender, and religion and freak out. In fact, to give you a bit of a backstory, one time Eric went viral on Twitter around Christmas time. This is in 2018, so a couple years ago, for cheekily saying that if God impregnated the Virgin Mary, then that means that he's guilty of rape. His tweet read, The virgin birth story is about an all-knowing, all-powerful deity impregnating a human teen. There is no definition of consent that would include that scenario. Happy holidays! He then followed it up with, The biblical God regularly punished disobedience. The power difference deity versus mortal, and the potential for violence for saying no negates her yes. To put someone in that position is an unethical abuse of power at best and grossly predatory at worst. This tweet made its way to the Tucker Carlson show, where a guest commentator named Mark Stein expressed his disapproval, and apparently his inability to take a joke, by saying, 50 years ago, this kind of shallow banality would be something in the province of a drunk undergraduate at three in the morning. As a result, Minnesota State University, where Eric is currently employed, issued a statement saying, as a public institution of higher education, Minnesota State University, Mankato, respects the rights and privileges associated with the U.S. Constitution, including in this case, the First Amendment right of freedom of speech and religion. Now, it's possible that you've seen Eric's tweets circulating around either on Twitter or Instagram, where he regularly posts his thoughts that span across all of his interests. Things like, God may be a myth, but multiple orgasms are not. Enjoy your Tuesday. Or, if you play the Lil Nas X record backwards, you'll hear a purely satanic message of the importance of loving and affirming your children. Or, weekend reminders like, Don't forget to replace the batteries in your vibrator and replace your partner who is insecure about your vibrator. Outside of his professional work and trolling the religious right on social media, Eric also has an advice column on his personal website, drsprinkle.com, which he calls the Scarlet Letters. 
Users can anonymously submit questions about anything involving sexual health, and he gives a thorough answer in his signature academic yet sassy tone on things like porn, breaking down the stigma of STIs, curiosity about golden showers, getting your boyfriend to go down on you or have sex with you on your period, and much more. If, after this interview, you find yourself wondering about something in your own sex life, I encourage you to head to the website and check it out and also submit something in the series yourself. Anyway, aside from just being entertained and fascinated by Eric and his work, I also wanted to talk to him because he is the only person I've ever encountered on a broad scale who seems to bridge the gap between the heavy music world and sexual health. And to me, those are two worlds that are intrinsically intertwined, whether we choose to talk about it or not. Music both inspires and is inspired by sex, and it's imperative that everyone in and out of that world knows how to talk about it. This means knowing your own body, how to ask for consent, how to be a good sexual partner, and above all else, how to communicate your needs and ask about someone else's as well. And at the end of the day, regardless of who we're talking to on this podcast, that's a topic that comes up every time. So here's my chat with Dr. Eric Sprankle. I hope you enjoy and also learn a lot. I guess to start things off, why don't you just give me a general rundown of like what a daily work day looks like for you? Like if somebody, if you like ran into somebody at a party and they were like, so what do you do? Like what would be your, your basic explanation of your life? Yeah. So observably that would be extremely boring for somebody to watch because especially over the past year, but even, even prior to this, um, when campuses were open, like 80% of my job probably is just in front of my laptop. Um, you know, I, I can do most of my research online. Um, I've always taught a couple of sections of my classes online too. Um, and then obviously grading and everything is just sitting in front of my laptop. So it is just a lot of staring at screens and it's just shuffling back and forth between whether I'm focused on teaching or research or my own professional development or some type of service to the community or uh, to the campus. But largely it exists online even prior, again, to the, to the pandemic. So it is, obviously, it's, it's focused primarily on sexuality and sexual health. I would say over the past year, it has incorporated my uh, kind of new research interest, which we can talk about too if we want, of looking at Satanists and stigma that they may experience or anticipatory discrimination, how that plays out into their uh, into their mental well-being. But uh, yeah, observably, again, it's it's just me sitting in front of a computer. So it's not it's not too exciting. That's the uh, the sexy life of a a sex therapist and <laughs> pro- professor researching sex. Well, at least I feel like everybody's life kind of looks like that right now. So mm-hmm. no, nobody could really uh, judge too hard. But it is funny, like that, you know, 
even even the life of a, a satanic sex therapist is is just as is uh observably boring in the pandemic as everything else <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah it's, it's very uh yeah, wishing for uh, this to end, uh, to change it up a little bit. Maybe I can scare, stare at my screen, maybe in a coffee shop again. So that, that could be an improvement. Shake it up a little bit. Same here. As a writer, I feel the exact same way. So um, right. so you are a, pro- a professor. And um, do you also do like one-on-one sessions with people? Or is it mostly focused on education at this point? Right now, it's just education and research. And then I do train clinicians either in person or now just through like webinars. Um, But I haven't done clinical work, like face-to-face clinical work uh, with clients or patients for a couple of years. Um, I was on sabbatical for uh, a semester. I forget when this was, maybe like 2017 or something, where I went back into uh, a private practice um, and just did sex therapy for six or so months. Uh, but then prior to that, I wasn't doing full-time clinical work since around 2010, 2011. So that's not really my like favorite thing. Um, I've always maintained my psych license and my certification as a sex therapist. Um, largely just, I don't know, I wouldn't say largely, but it's always in the back of my mind in case I get fired at any day by uh, <laughs> Minnesota State. I, I can... Uh, uh, go into clinical work like literally the next day by having an active license still. Um, Perfect. But no, I enjoy uh, te- teaching and research the most. I don't. I don't really do clinical work directly. So, how did you get into that when you were growing up? Like, what drew you to the field of sex education? Um, professionally, it wasn't until my undergrad years, I was, I think a sophomore, this would have been at university of Cincinnati right around like maybe 2001, 2002. And I just, I was a psych major, um, but more interested in forensic psych at the time, like the intersections of the criminal justice system and criminal behavior and psychology. But I took a human sexuality class as an elective and just really was fascinated by it. And more so in the fact that going into the class, I was like, okay, this is going to be an easy A. What else is there to know about sex? And pretty much everything that I thought I knew about sex was either flat out wrong or incorrect or some type of half truth, um, usually kind of mixed in with the scare tactic that we learned at some point, especially during like K through 12 sex ed, if there was any. So I just found that whole field fascinating of how much that we think we know, but we don't. Um, And since that point, I've been pursuing some type of professional career within sexuality or sexual health. At at first, I I did want to be a full-time clinician, um, focusing on sex therapy, and then that slowly uh, morphed into wanting to be more on the academic side. So when you say scare tactics that we learn in K-12, through I mean, I can vaguely imagine what you're talking about, but can you give me some examples? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the big one that, that comes to mind is um, in junior high for me, the sex ed lecture was just like a, a one or two day uh, lecture within the general health class. And it was just a slideshow of the worst untreated STI symptoms uh, imaginable. And it was just a, you know, designed to scare you that if you have sex, this is what your body's going to look like afterwards. And that was it. There, there is no nuance into understanding infection transmission and that these images are, you know, there, there's a reason why 
some physician or, or, or some researcher took a photo of somebody's genitals. And it wasn't because they had a run-of-the-mill case of genital warts or genital herpes. It's because they had the worst case that they've ever seen. It's like, oh, shit, right. I need to grab my camera and take a photo of this. Like, there's a medical journal or a textbook that would like to see this. Um, but that, that wasn't explained. And, and so when the health educator or the health teacher, you know, projected these images up on the screen, we're left with, oh my goodness, all STIs look like this. If we get an STI, this is what our, our body's gonna turn into and it's gonna be fatal um, or it's gonna be permanent um, and disfigure us. And so that's what I mean, kind of like at least one example of a scare tactic of, of be afraid of sex because it's gonna be very, very harmful for you. Right, like the, the thing that's in um, Mean Girls, like if you have sex, mm. you will get <laughs> pregnant and you will die. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Just very black and white thinking. Sure, there are things, um, you know, that, that can be fatal, but uh, that is definitely the exception and not the norm. So you went into learning these things and you were like, actually, I think I want to be an educator in this field so that I can stop the perpetuating of these myths? Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought it was very fascinating of, again, like how much we think we know, but we don't. And just really correcting a lot of the misinformation and oftentimes just flat out disinformation that we get um, as kind of like anti-sex propaganda. And yeah, it was just kind of focused, kind of focused my life's mission on debunking a lot of sexuality and, and sexual health myths and pushing back against a lot of systems that perpetuate those myths. And you also on the side do a series on your website called the Scarlet Letters, which I love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. How did you decide to start doing that for fun, like as a project? And also, I guess, for people who are listening that have never heard of it, maybe give a little backstory for it. Yeah, so it was just a blog I started, I think, around 2011, I think my first year as a professor at Minnesota State. And I don't know, it was just one way I felt like I wanted to go beyond the campus walls and just to, to provide some service to the community as some type of public sex educator. Um, and so I think it was just like a WordPress blog uh, back then. And, you know, I had... I had zero visibility and like no readership. Most of the, the question, it was supposed to be just like a Q and A, um, kind of Dear Abby, Savage Love uh, kind of format. And I ended up making up most of the questions just because I didn't have like any reader submissions or anything. Totally. So I was, I was pretty much just talking to myself. Um, but I kept that up for a couple of years. Um, and then it just kind of lost steam. I, I just kind of focused on other, other things. But I picked it back up um, just this past January 2021. And I've been trying to do it uh, weekly, which I have done so far. So I think I just posted this morning uh, my ninth or tenth one uh, for the year. And it was just on... Uh, uh, similarly to what I was just talking about with STIs and scare tactics, someone wrote in about having HPV and I was really depressed, not knowing how this is going to change his sex life now. And so trying to keep him down to like maybe three to five minute reads um, for the audience. And so just quick little, you know, reassurances, validation, support, debunking some myths um, and just a lo little bit longer format than what I'm used to just like tweeting out um, kind of bullshit post that I do. <laughs> my, I think my favorite one that you did is one about period sex. Um, yeah. 
It was a, it's like, that's a topic that people talk about all the time. And of course, I think the average woman is totally down and some men find it really gross and some men are uh, awesome about it and don't really care. But the way that you phrase things was really interesting to me and just putting it in terms of like, what makes you think that semen is a better bodily fluid than blood and what makes you think that's okay to be on someone's body but blood shouldn't be and i just right. loved that so much <laughs> yeah having different rules for different uh, different rules for different bodily fluids so definitely showing double standards uh, of what bodily fluids can go where uh during sex there's definitely gendered norms around that yeah it's really interesting to me to see like the male supremacy and even very, very subtle ways like that in our culture that we would never really think about or that we um, are encouraged to not talk about because women things are just like gross and we're not allowed to talk about periods at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And you can see that that was, that was a pretty popular post, at least more so on like Instagram and like the comments section when I, uh, talked about it first and then, you know, just provided the link in the bio. Um, and, and it played out kind of how, what was pretty much at the, the root of the question and my answer too, of just people coming in and saying like, well, that's kind of gross. And then people like miss having very poor reading comprehension and thinking that I was saying it was gross, but I was just talking about what oh my the, God. The, the user uh, or the, the reader submission question was, was quoting. Um, right. But yeah, it, it is this this double standard, and also treating menstrual blood as like a different type of blood uh, in the body. So I did mention in the post, like you know, people may have blood phobia or, or some type of squeamishness around blood in general. In that case, yeah, they're they're not necessarily going to be up to um, having blood any type uh, during any type of sex play. But short of that, more than likely, there is some type of kind of ingrained sexism but that comes out in the form of just being very kind of grossed out about uh, a menstruating person right i bet you a lot of that traffic was women sending that post to their boyfriends <laughs> <laughs> oh i hope so yeah <laughs> <laughs> like see i told you <laughs> this guy said right. it's fine right Fucking yeah. get to it man <laughs> <laughs> So you mentioned um, your more recent work is um, about Satanists and about some of the um, the trouble that they have and the um, why am I struggling to find the words right now? The like persecution that they endure to this day in 2021 and, and the effect on their mental health. How did mm -hmm. you get into that line of work or that that field of study? Yeah, so a couple of years ago, this was going to be just a little bit of a side project. I kind of had this gap um, in research projects, so I was like, maybe I'll just do something for myself, a little side project, something that would be fun, and possibly even a little bit of a goof. And it was a goof because it was kind of designed to troll um, my university. And the backstory to that was, I think in maybe 2018, one of my tweets was being picked up by right-wing media and it made it all the way to like Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News and around the, it was like in December so I also And what was that tweet again? It was oh, I have to paraphrase cuz I don't know how it was worded specifically but 
I was actually writing a lecture um, on consent and thinking about consent and like different um, just thought exercises I can have my students think about uh, consent a little bit differently. And I think the, the example I was coming up with was, can we consent to sex with vampires as it's depicted like in True Blood um, or Vampire Diaries or Twilight and things like that because of the power difference, the age difference, all these different things. And so that was the actual thought exercise I was going to put into my uh, course material. But since it was like December, what I tweeted out was looking at the consent dynamics between God and Mary uh, when she was impregnated. And I said something like, um, an all-powerful, all-knowing uh, God who impregnates a human teen, something like there's no definition of consent that would include that scenario in like happy holidays. Um, <laughs> so that eventually got picked up and like really conspiratorial kind of ends of the right wing media at first. And then it worked its way up to Fox news. And that was very insightful to kind of see the uh, information pipelines that lead up to, to the more of the, the mainstream uh, uh, right wing news outlets. But um, since it was December too, I also at that time had photos posted uh, on Instagram or, or Twitter of like my inverted pentacle that I put on top of my Christmas tree. I had um, the elf on the shelf posing next to a Baphomet statue I had. So some tannic things <laughs> that I decorate my house with in December. Awesome. And so they were running wild with that. And so there were a lot of headlines <laughs> out at that time that were calling me like the satanic professor, Satanist professor, Satanist doctor, things like that. And so I was like, oh, wouldn't that be funny if I actually leaned into that a little bit more and actually became the Satanist professor and did some Satanist research and that the university would have to acknowledge this as opposed to just put out like this PR statement of like, we don't like what he said, but we have to protect his right to say it and blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> So it was a little bit of a goof um, on that, but what turned, but what that actually turned into was a really interesting study. We got like close to 1,300 participants who uh, took our survey, so self-identified Satanists all over the world, and we were measuring their experiences with anticipatory discrimination. Um, we measured their depressive symptoms, their strength of Satanist identity, so how much how central Satanism is to their senses of self, how well connected they are to other Satanists. And then we just ran all these different kind of a correlational analyses uh, to see which of these um, kind of variables related to one another. And so that, that actually spawned like four or five mini projects from that one. And then we had a follow-up study that looked at uh, Satanists and their sexuality and their sexual values. And so that has also spawned a couple of individual projects from there. And so now I guess I am a Satanist professor because this is my field of research and will be for the foreseeable future. We just are sitting on a lot of data that we can analyze and, and write up for publication in a lot of different ways. That is so awesome. Um, it seems to me that like there are so many sex educators in the world, but you have found a corner that did not exist previously. And as a result, it probably elevated your, your social media and um, like your name being a more unique and recognizable thing in that world. Yeah, that is, that is true. And that's, that's that wasn't intentionally created, but it's intentionally maintained. And so what I mean by that was that 
this was slowly me just being more authentic professionally. Mm-hmm. So I've always been into like satanic things and horror and metal. Um, but that was always kind of kept a little bit separate from my professional identity. I may use, you know, horror movie examples and stuff when I'm t- teaching, but they were largely kind of separate worlds. But over time, I, I started integrating that more and more because that is an expression of my authentic self. And now that it is, and I recognize how good it feels to, to be integrated into my authentic selves, both personally and professionally, um, then I work hard to maintain it. I, I, I don't want to, I know that if I am being authentic, I'm not a sex educator for everybody. There's going to be people who are really turned off to, to what I say, how I say it, the fact that I incorporate, um, my critiques of Christianity and especially Christian supremacy. Um, I know I'm not ever going to be invited to be like the sex therapist on Good Morning America or Ellen or anything like that. And that's fine. In fact, if I, if I was invited to those type of shows, that would be evidence for me that I'm kind of straying from my authentic self. <laughs> so, totally. Yeah, I like my little corner. It, it allows me to be freer than I see maybe other sex educators are, where they, they try to cast a, a wider net. And that has its place, too. I'm not, I'm not shitting on them. Uh, that's just, I, I can't do that. And that, that's just not kind of my role as I, I define it as a, as a public sex educator. So what has it been like for you watching your name go out there into the world and be talked about like that when you went into it, just thinking you were going to be a professor. Yeah. As a socially anxious person, it's terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) I can't even imagine. (laughs) Yeah. Like, so I, I get blowback and negativity and like hate and outright like death threats that became pretty severe at one point. Um, and I, I would like to believe or like to say rather or the, if this was a reflection of reality like oh it doesn't matter I have really thick skin it just rolls off of me I've gotten used to it and I'm sure I've developed some level of tolerance compared to maybe when it was first starting uh, to happen but no like uh, I'm a I'm a people pleaser I don't like the fact that I offended some random person in Massachusetts um, that I that I said something critical of Christianity and promotion of masturbation like their feelings do affect me. Um, and so I, 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 my initial response is one of like empathy and kind of fear of like, Oh shit, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm upsetting people and this is uncomfortable. And my knee jerk reaction in those scenarios, and this plays out in any capacity in my life and to a unhealthy extent is to like, how can I soothe this over? Like, how can I soothe Mm -hmm. their feelings? Right. So that's like the subjugation piece. And so it's a lot of work to, to maintain that, no, you know, that's their reaction. They can, they're adults, they can self-soothe, they can like distance themselves from me or my, in my content. Um, mm-hmm. You know, me being authentic is saying what I say. I have a market, uh, you know, not a market, but a target audience for this that, that does like my stuff and does benefit from it. Um, but yeah, the negativity, I, I do actually have a very thin skin and some things push my buttons more than, than others. But um, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not pleasant. But as my therapist keeps reminding me, if, if white supremacists aren't upset by stuff that I put out there, then maybe something's a little <laughs> bit wrong with the stuff that I'm putting out there. Because I, I don't want a neo-Nazi to come across one of my sex ed posts and be like, 
yeah, that's okay. I agree with that. Absolutely. So, um, so I try to reframe it of like the people who get upset at me, they should be upset at me. And that, that is evidence that I am being authentic and I am staying on message, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that it's really cool that you have feelings about that and that you have empathy because I imagine that it'd be pretty difficult to even want to get into your field in the first place if you weren't a person that cared about people's feelings and right. it shows that you're human and that you genuinely care about what you do and, and your position as a human in this world. So I think you should hang on to that as much as you can. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Psycho psychopathic therapist or professor, I don't think is what clients or students would really want or benefit from. Totally. And, you know, it's interesting because I feel like um, millennials and especially Gen Z, they want their content to be very, very authentic. And they want the people that are in all these institutions that we have in this world, like especially education, to be really, really authentically themselves and to cut the bullshit and give you straight talk of what, how life actually is. And so it mm -hmm. seems like you have really, really found a way to speak to people in that way. And especially because I have never seen somebody speak to the, the metal community or the, the music community in general um, about sex education the way that your social media has. Mm. So do you feel like you went into any of that knowing that you were going to bridge the gap between the, the metal community and sex therapist type of stuff? Or was that just completely an accident? That, uh, that wasn't intentional. So I, I think it's an example, again, of kind of being an accident at first, but trying to maintain it intentionally now that I'm kind of mm -hmm. there and I, I feel like, yeah, this is, this is home. And where home is, is just still kind of like this ambiguous in-between area. Like, I'm not a musician. Um, I, I don't you know, fit into that culture 100%. Um, I am an academic, but I'm a little bit of an outsider within the academic world, so I don't fit in 100% there. And so where are my quote-unquote people um, is kind of like existing in between. And so it does feel kind of like this perpetual outsider of, of like both worlds that I try to straddle, but I just try to accept like, well, that's kind of where I am. Um, mm -hmm. I have these professional interests within academia. I have these personal interests within horror and music and, you know, tattoos and all these other things that I'm not in that culture hundred percent either. And so I'm just kind of right in this middle, just trying to have the best of both worlds, I guess. But in terms of like, um, maybe, uh, in group ties or community identity, I think that's just kind of where the struggle is a little bit because I'm not hundred percent in one camp or the other, but, um, it isn't intentional because this is my authentic sense of self is, you know, straddling these worlds. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And I feel like I feel like the metal community appreciates the the outsiders of the world carving out their space. So I feel like that that might actually work to your benefit <laughs> with us <Yeah>. weirdos. <laughs> yeah, one thing it does though for sure, it, it creates imposter syndrome for both. Like imposter as like I'm not a good enough academic. I should be like publishing in these journals or I should have, you know, X amount of publications per year, get this grant. A type of researcher or an academic I even mean, don't want to be, but think I should be, uh, if I call myself a professor. And likewise with you know, there's obviously gatekeeping 
within uh, the music scene and feeling that I'm not enough. And so sometimes feeling like if I if I talk about a certain band that's like, oh, I'm not a real fan or that's a pretty mainstream band. So like, fuck you. So I, this is all oh, like self-imposed. I've never really got that like feedback. This is just kind of self-imposed imposter syndrome um, within both camps. You know, it's funny. So I've been a I've been a metal journalist for 12 years and I've worked for Kerrang and now I run a metal channel at Warner Music Group and like all the stuff. And I have gotten to the point where those people who, <laughs> who get, jump down your throat for mentioning a band that's too mainstream, like I have zero patience for it whatsoever. And I'm like, you know <laughs> yeah. what? Those bands are famous for a reason and they're really fun. And I go right. home and listen to Rihanna now because I can't <laughs> deal with it anymore. <laughs> right. So who are some of your favorite bands and how did you get into that world? Yeah, so I, I like to think when you first contacted me for this interview and mentioned like industrial music, I, it did bring up that imposter syndrome. It's like, oh shit, I need to be like a historian on industrial music and oh, think God. of all these like obscure <laughs> bands now to talk about. Um, <laughs> no. Because like my most listened to bands are the ones who came out of like the 90s industrial scene, and a lot of them are still making music, so I can still listen to new stuff that they're putting out. But yeah, like Rammstein and Nine Inch Nails. Oh, hell yeah. Um, are on like heavy rotation. Um, but yeah, so I thinking back to at least with industrial or at least industrial type of music, um, this would have been junior high for me. So like 94 to 96. And I can't remember like what actually came first, but there was definitely, and I know today just coincidentally is the 27th anniversary of Downward Spiral getting released. And so that was definitely. Oh, yes, it is. Yeah. So that was definitely in there as first exposure at least closer the music video that ran on mtv and also what i had to think about too was uh seeing the movie seven uh with brad pitt and morgan freeman that they had a remix of closer during their opening credits as well as gravity kills one of their songs was in a scene and i was really into like true crime and like serial killer kind of stuff at that time still am but um and the, just that being paired with that kind of music, I was like, yes, this this is something. Um, and then I know Astro Creek 2095, I remember hearing More Human Than Human on the, on the radio and being like, what the hell is this? This is great. Um, so one of those three bands, maybe Gravity Kills, Nine Inch Nails, or White Zombie, around the mid-90s was my introduction. And then definitely in high school with just the, the flood that, you know, 90s industrial really kind of took off and me kind of going along for that ride. Um, but before then, I was um, I got into to metal through... This would have been fifth grade for me with Metallica's Black Album came out at that time, like 91, I think, awesome. 92. And then also Guns N' Roses at the same time with the Use Your Illusion, I think, came out. And then I also, with, with Metallica, I just kind of stuck in the Black Album. I didn't listen to any other Metallica music until later, until like Load started getting released and Reload. And then I started working back in their discography and then like, you know, found, you know, Master of Puppets when I was in high school. But with uh, Guns N' Roses, little fifth, uh, 11-year-old uh, Eric uh, listening to like Appetite for Destruction and the Use Your Illusion albums. And um, yeah, so always really into like metal of some sort or rock of some sort. And then it really kind of industrial took over in the mid to late 90s in high school for me. That's really cool. You know, it's interesting because I, I feel like I've always seen industrial as this subset of metal where it's a lot more feminine, it's a lot more sexual, and mm -hmm. it's a lot more accepting. And 
I mean, obviously I love metal of, of many different kinds, but, um, it seems like this space where sexuality thrives and gender can be played with and, um, you know, mainstream metal at large can, can often be a place where it's like sweaty dudes marketing music to other sweaty dudes and people who have the ability to talk openly about sexuality tend to be more gravitated toward industrial and Mm -hmm. as a, or maybe, maybe it's like life imitating art or imitating life, but people like Trent Reznor were the ones that taught us how to be sexual with videos like the closer video or like till from Romstein actively making porn outside of (laughs) his band and stuff like that. Like, I think it's really interesting that, you know, you, you came from that world and then you actually made that your career basically now to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think some crossovers too is possibly industrial would be more within the club scene and, uh, especially the overlap, at least aesthetically with BDSM. Um, mm-hmm. I think that all, all ties into to one another. And like, I think if you're into BDSM, you've gone to a goth fetish club, you've been exposed to this music. And if anything, it's just, you know, a, a learned association of Pavlovian response. Like if you're into BDSM, you've been to one of these clubs. Now you like Nine Inch Nails, uh, because that's what's playing, um, while you're watching somebody get flogged and like vice versa too. Totally. Obviously, obviously BDSM doesn't have to be all about leather and industrial music. Um, but the aesthetic can be, uh, that and what you see in some of these music videos. And so I, I think there's a nice sexuality component to industrial, uh, of just certain subcultures within, uh, sex too. Yeah. It's an interesting point you bring up. Like it doesn't have to be those things, but maybe somebody seeing that on MTV growing up, made them interested in at least exploring what that looks like for them and finding what Avenue makes them feel good and makes them feel like accepted in that world as like a gateway drug kind of. Yeah, for sure. And thinking that sex can be beyond penile vaginal intercourse, um, that it can be all these different elements. Um, and that BDSM is definitely one area to explore that really changes the definition of what sex is, what it can be and what sexual satisfaction and pleasure look like. Do you, is this something that you get to talk to your students about? Like, do you have any goth leaning students that are, that want to nerd out with you (laughs) about (laughs) music? Yeah. Sometimes, um, yeah, sometimes you'll see people sit in the front row with some type of, you know, metal t-shirt on and a little bit of like a, (laughs) a nod and acknowledgement of, thank you. Um, that's cool. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's an appreciation of kind of what I bring, uh, to my classes, the examples I use, what the things that I get excited about talking, um, about it's certainly like my classes are all electives. And so, People can self-select. No one's required to take my classes, which is good. And so I have to remind myself, too, of like, you know, when when I'm being authentic and incorporating some of these other elements uh, into sex education that just interest me, um, that I have to remind myself that that's okay. It may be divisive. And again, I'm not going to be everybody's sex educator. I may be a little polarizing, but that person who intentionally takes my class because they heard what I'm into, they heard my style, 
and they really feel a connection with my material and possibly even looking at me. That's what this is not me generating this thought. These are the affirmations coming from my therapist that have turned into self affirmations. <laughs> um, <Awesome>. That <laughs> that that student is even possibly looking at me, saying like, "Oh, I can be this kind of weirdo outsider with kind of these fringe interests and still work in academia um, or whatever mm-hmm. type of career path that they they have in mind." So serving as a model for how you can combine these interests and different type of job settings um, that's also kind of like intentionally maintained um, to connect with with students with um, similar interests. That's awesome. And also so cool that they give you that like quiet wink and a nod when they come into your classroom. Like I feel like that's the (laughs) universal metalhead, uh, you know, like nonverbal hello <laughs> Let's do that <laughs> right. to a professor like you yeah, i'm sure that's really really cool and must make you feel good it does yeah at least at least they're listening to something that if i mentioned nine inch nails as an example with something the a lecture before and they're showing up with a nine inch nail shirt the, the, the next day then it's like okay you're hearing this you're getting the message is getting through. <laughs> <laughs> that's so rad what can you give me an example of a, a time in your lectures that nine inch nails would come up uh um Maybe within the BDSM lectures of, of talking about what like BDSM subculture is, um, that the stereotype of what it is, like I was saying, it is like the, the leathers and the chains and the floggings, but it doesn't have to be that. You can use pink, fluffy, uh, you know, handcuffs or just use, um, you know, really soft feathers. That can all be under the umbrella of BDSM too, but the kind of stereotypical image is more of kind of like the the goth fetish scene, um, and that goes along with you know industrial type music playing in in the background. So probably incorporating it in uh, to a BDSM lecture, but also I think I mentioned like Neil Diamond as an example that you can be to, into BDSM and listen to Neil Diamond during a session or uh, a play session, and that's still BDSM, and you're still badass for whatever you want to do. <laughs> I love that example. <laughs> and I kind of love the thought of somebody going home and trying that out. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> so this, I, I debated whether or not I wanted to bring this up because that's such a touchy subject in the world right now. So feel free to pass on this question if you want to. But sure. I know that you have been a, a huge fan of Marilyn Manson in, right. you know, for, yeah, as a young person up until uh, being an, an adult. And obviously he's heavily in the news right now because of all these women coming forward. And, um, it's a tough place for a lot of us to be where we were, you know, in many ways liberated by him and, and the subject matters that he's saying about and, and all of that and mm-hmm. genuinely loving his music. But one thing that as a, especially as a person in metal media, I see constantly in comment sections all the time is, um, people conflating BDSM with abuse and constantly saying things like, well, sounds like these women wanted it. And now they're just mad at it more like, um, right. what, what goes on in the bedroom is not my business or whatever. What would you say to people like that who misunderstand the difference? Yeah. So the big thing is like the difference between BDSM and abuse is consent. And so from the outside perspective, the observer, it can look the same. I mean, if somebody is getting some type of impact play, whether it's with the hands or some type of um, 
you know, device like a, a flogger or a cane or a crop, um, it can look abusive. It can look violent, but the difference would be that all parties involved have had a conversation prior to that of what are their limits? What are they into? What are they hoping to get out of the scene? Um, how are they doing right now in the moment? What are the safe words? And checking in with each other throughout the scene to make sure, is this going in an okay direction? Do we need to slow down? Do we need to stop? That's consent. That's healthy BDSM play. You can have the same type of behavior, but strip all of that um, kind of all those discussions out of it, then that's really a recipe for just abuse um, because we don't have explicit consent. Uh, ongoing consent is not there. And that's where um, abuse can certainly play out. Yeah, so those comments, uh, comments within the comment section are definitely like a dumpster fire of uh, just kind of understanding consent, understanding BDSM, trying to conflate the two, and that's really worrisome. And they may just be like defending him um, unnecessarily and unhealthily um, publicly like that. But you see that even prior to to these um, uh, to Manson being in the, in the news of this conflation between BDSM and, and abuse. But that differentiation is consent. And what's even more nuanced with this and can be challenging is that if we want to go a step further, because just kind of dividing that, okay, if it's, if there's a, a consent violation or a boundary violation, it's no longer BDSM, it's, it's just abuse. That makes sense. And I think that's a good message to send early on, trying to mm -hmm. educate the difference. But it's a little bit more nuanced because certainly there's a lot of individuals that kind of hide under the guise of BDSM while still being abusive or um, you know, predators, uh, in a sense. Mm -hmm. And so you can be engaged in BDSM and be abusive at the same time. And so they, they're not like these separate constructs. People can be engaging in BDSM behaviors, bondage, discipline, dominance, sadism, and masochism. And that behavior is abusive because of the lack of consent. And so it really requires kind of a very um, explicit and nuanced understanding of what consent is, especially when it is applied in these kind of scenarios that people are very unfamiliar with, like uh, a BDSM play session. That makes perfect sense. And I wish that I had all of that typed out and ready so I could say, well, Eric Sprankle says, and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then post that right in the comments. So to bring it a little bit more personal, um, mm -hmm. so you and your wife got married uh, in a cemetery on Halloween. Right. And mm -hmm. uh, the I feel like the, the photo of that went pretty viral when you posted it, didn't it? Or am I... Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's in the daily mail, the UK publication, cause it was around the same oh, time <laughs> that, um, you know, they really like combed through my social media looking for anything satanic. And that was one of the photos, uh, that, that came up, including a photo of me and Manson from years back when I, I met him backstage before a show. So they were pulling anything up that could paint me as this Satanist professor. Um, and yeah, my, one of my wedding photos was, was making the, the, the rounds on on glo global media there for a while. But yeah, we got married in the cemetery on, on Halloween. A couple of good goth kids. So. <laughs> the the smile on your face in the photo um, was a great <laughs> indicator of how, how that lifestyle genuinely makes you happy. So Right, it um, does, yeah. 
<laughs> How did you and your wife meet? We met on OkCupid. <laughs> this would have been like Adorable. almost 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> so that was one like success story for a long-term relationship coming out of OkCupid. Um, yeah. So we were on there at the time. Funny story kind of with that was I was in an open relationship, uh, consensually non-monogamous relationship. And so we were both, um, both my partner and I at the time were uh, at least exploring other people. I think she had other partners uh, already. This was all new to me. So I was like, okay, like, I guess I'll go back to OkCupid. I really didn't know what I was doing. Um, so that's, that's where she and I first crossed paths. And we just kind of met up for coffee and really like hit it off. But we just kind of diverged um, from anything like romantic or sexual developing. And we just became really good friends for, for several years. And then eventually we were both single at the same time. And at that point it was just kind of like, we should like be dating. Right. And then it, then we just started dating from, from there. And then, yeah, we got, got married and, and here we are. So did you maintain your relationship with this other person that you were dating prior to that when you met and eventually started dating your wife or did that end? Um, it ended romantically that that was a very short term kind of relationship, just a couple of months, uh, or so. Um, but yeah, we're all friends now. We it's kind of joking, like how we all met <laughs> at first, uh, when we kind of hang out just as friends, but, um, yeah, so that relationship didn't last, but yeah, we're, we're still in touch, uh, as, as, as friends though. That's awesome. I, I think open relationships are such a fascinating thing to me in, in mm-hmm. many, many ways. And, uh, they're not something that I have actively participated in much in my life, but hearing about other people and all the different ways that that works out for them is really fascinating to me. And having, hearing about like one situation being not very serious and then encouraging you to date other people and then finding your wife that way is just really cool <laughs> to me. Well, yeah, that was the interesting thing too, because uh, I'm not, that was all new and I, I've been in open relationships in the, in the, in the past, but more as kind of like a secondary person, um, when I was single, but, uh, I'm monogamous now it's just monogamy is a much better fit for me relationally. And, but yeah, that was the interesting thing that I remember feeling at that time because I I've never had, or was involved in an open relationship before. And the person that I was dating, that's, that was their more like relational orientation. Like that's who they were as a person. They, if they were monogamous, that was definitely forced and that was not going to be long lasting uh, for them. Mm-hmm. So they, for them to be authentic, they needed to be open. And so I was like, okay, I'll go along with this. Sure. Why not? It was casual at the beginning anyway. So it's like, what difference does that make? But right. as things progressed and I was like still seeing other people when I normally wouldn't have under like more monogamy kind of a situation of dating progression, and after I met my, my current wife, it was kind of like, I really like this person. Like, what's stopping me from putting more energy into this other person, especially considering I only known my primary partner for like a month at best. So I think a coup could happen here. Like, and, I, and then I started thinking <laughs> just more intellectually of just, well, what would be better? Opening it up from the get-go and having not necessarily a solid footing with the primary relationship while like engaging with concurrent relationships or starting off monogamously 
creating a strong foundation between the two of you first and then opening up with clear boundaries with like secondary partners. I, mm-hmm. eight, nine years later, I still don't have an answer for this, whatever works for the individual. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really fascinating at the time. I was just like, yeah, I really like this person. I just met up for coffee. I kind of want them to be my primary girlfriend. Like what? I don't think that's allowed. Like I was, I was so naive. I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but fortunately I didn't have to make those ethical decisions. Like the primary relationship just kind of fizzled out. And like two years later, I started dating um, a friend that I developed out of that scenario. What a beautiful story. I love that so much. <laughs> <laughs> So what types of things has your wife taught you about life? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I would say to prioritize and value my time more um, because I have such a history of subjugating myself and people pleasing that like my own needs, my own time get back burner to the like the needs of of other people and so she has really allowed me just through like observing her own behavior and her own kind of work-life balance and how she manages friendships and everything to just kind of like pump the brakes a little bit and slow down and that I don't have to say yes to everything I can value my own downtime um, I'm pretty introverted anyways um, so just leaning into that and engaging in behaviors that align with more of my introversion than trying to push myself to go, 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 just uh, to try to please others. And so that's, that's one of the biggest things of just kind of getting myself to, to slow down more toward a lifestyle that is aligned with who I am. That's incredible. It's, it's amazing how, learning how to set boundaries shows you who respects you more because people won't try and push you if you don't let them. Yeah. And that can be a rough transition, um, too. If you're trying out something new, if you've always been just kind of the yes person and willing to drop everything, um, and then starting to stand up for yourself, set some boundaries, say no, or state some preferences like that doesn't land well on some people who just want wanted you in a relationship to just kind of orbit around them. And yeah, relationships, uh, friendships and romantic relationships have fallen apart once you start kind of asserting your, your boundaries a little bit more. And like you said, I think that really goes to show like what function or what role do you have in that relationship from the perspective of the other person and how unhealthy that may be. Yeah, it it might fizzle out if you're asserting your boundaries, but it will most certainly fizzle out later if you don't assert boundaries and then you find yourself in a situation that makes you deeply unhappy. Absolutely. Yeah. So you either have to be authentic and risk, you know, rolling, roughing some feathers a little bit or just let that resentment slowly build and then that'll have a destructive end as well. So once your wife kind of taught you how to do that, did you find that there were certain things that fell away from your life because you were setting better boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we were, once we decided to date, we were, um, technically still like open to the possibility of being an open relationship. That's kind of what we knew at that time. And so I was seeing this, the, the, this couple 
And once I started having to put my own boundaries on things and no longer of just the outsider, just kind of going along with whatever they wanted, their own boundaries to protect their relationship, kind of being available whenever they wanted me to. And I was like, oh, I have this primary relationship that I want to nurture and respect and value and prioritize. So I need to start asserting some boundaries and some needs for myself to them. That was explosive. And so in hindsight, that definitely ended things um, with like no contact now, not even friendly. Um, and then in hindsight, that really kind of showed the kind of subjugation I was doing within that relationship dynamic and also kind of the power that they exerted and losing any kind of power didn't work for them anymore. And so that was just like a really kind of nasty dynamic that I was involved in and kind of being you know, thrown clear of that, realizing how unhealthy that was uh, for all parties involved. And so, um, wow. yeah, so, so things certainly like fizzled out quite dramatically. Uh, but then others, it was like, yeah, no big deal. Understand you're starting this new relationship. Of course, you want to spend some time with them or you may have preferences where we go for dinner uh, as a group and things <laughs> like that. Uh, so, yeah, totally. it really does kind of show the, the healthy relationships versus the more unhealthy ones. Damn. I, I feel like that's something I hear over and over and over again is that open relationships teach you so much about communication, boundary setting, and people end up learning so much more about themselves in the process than I feel like a lot of my monogamous friends have said. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of like the joke that people think that, you know, being in an open relationship, being polyamorous, that it's just like sex 24 seven. It's like hedonism. Uh, like a swingers <laughs> club and it's like no it's 99 percent processing feelings and talking about boundaries that's what open relationships uh, are and by doing so even if it's not a great fit for you long term but being part of that world and being kind of pushed to be insightful and to reflect on your feelings and your needs and to be able to assert those yeah those are skills that you can definitely bring into monogamous relationships that make monogamous relationships uh, much more healthy that's awesome I hope that we can all learn from that stuff, even if we don't choose to participate in it ourselves, which is like the fact that our society at large is talking about that more just makes mm -hmm. everyone more open to communication. At least that's the way I feel like the world has gone recently. Maybe it's just because I spent a lot of time around people who love therapy, but <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> right, yeah, that's kind of my bubble too. So <laughs> <laughs> totally. Mm -hmm. Well, so to bring this full circle, um, I always end this by asking people what advice they would give to people for having the best relationship possible. But I also want to ask you what you think the music community can do to better foster um, education about sexuality and also communication. So, um, so why don't we start with the music one and then you can tell me mm -hmm. on a personal level uh, your advice about relationships. Yeah, um, I would say to, to foster healthier sexuality in the music scene. Yeah, it's, it's so hard for me to think because I have such a, like a narrow exposure to it. Um, I would just from the so I'll speak more from personal experience rather than trying to make generalizations that may not land well with some. Be like, well, that's not 
accurate from my experience. So I'll speak more from my experience, which can't be argued against. Um, so, <laughs> totally. <laughs> right. So being more in, in the industrial scene and these goth and fetish clubs when I was more of a, a club goer in my, in my 20s, early 30s, um, that even in these like so-called sex positive, uh, more sexually liberated kind of environments, you can still have abusive dynamics. Um, you can still have, just because there's a heightened sexualized atmosphere, that's not a blanket consent form uh, for people. You still have to engage with consent one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, so for example, you're at this like BDSM show at a goth and fetish club, and you know there's public flogging that, that's happening from a professional dominatrix with somebody from the audience who came up uh, to, to want to be the sub for you know 15 minutes or so. So it's a heightened sexualized environment, and sometimes people will have the cognitive distortion and thinking that, oh, this is anything goes. Everybody's so liberated here. We can do whatever we want. And then they can start easily crossing boundaries by not asking for, for consent and, and thinking that you're up mm -hmm. for everything, even though they were never asked what they were up for or is this okay. And so making sure that regardless of the scene that you're into, regardless of how sexualized it is, Explicit consent and having those conversations is still a prerequisite uh, to doing anything. That what you see is not consent. What you say uh, is part of the consent uh, process. So I think that would be the thing with sexuality and, and at least the music scenes that I, I've been a part of. I really like that. That's a really concise way of putting it. What you see is not consent. What you say is consent. Yeah, and I think that can, you know, generalize too of like, it's a dress, not a yes. Some of those slogans and, and stuff, it totally. obviously goes beyond kind of like the, the fetish scene. But yeah, I definitely witnessed that. I mean, within BDSM environments um, that, oh, we're all here. We're so positive with uh, sexuality and we're so free that anything goes. And it's not anything goes. You still have to get consent just like uh, anybody else in any other kind of scene. Totally. Well, I think uh, especially right now when there's so many conversations surrounding you know, things we talked about before with Marilyn Manson and many other musicians that, you know, tend to be very sexual and dark people. And then it comes out that maybe it was going further than just the BDSM world they talk about. I think these are things that, you know, as the conversation progresses, we do need to be talking about more and not just when it comes up because there is an abuser being outed, but something that we foster right. all the time. Yeah, something that, that's just not reactionary. Um, because when you get reactionary, that's where you see kind of like the, the bullshit that happens in comment sections of the victim mm -hmm. blaming and the unnecessary, uh, you know, public defenses. And it's just like, you know, that is such a distraction from the issues that we should be talking about uh, right now. It's like, yeah, I get it. You're a fan. I've been a fan since 1997 or something. And not just like totally. a casual fan where I listen to beautiful people when I work out or something. It's like, it's my background music on most days. Um, right. So, you know, this just fucking sucks as a fan, but you have to sit with that. And I don't know what this means going forward or, or long term, but what we should be focused on are these conversations about what consent means and how we can foster these healthier environments. Right. Like what, what lesson we can take from this and make the community better as a whole so that this doesn't happen again. Right. I love that answer. So what would you tell people in their daily lives about how to 
have the best relationship possible. So I think a, th- a theme that has been just popping up in this conversation over the past hour has been authenticity and expressing your true authentic uh, self. And to put that into relationships of, you know, to be able to do that, you really kind of have to know yourself. And, you know, we can't wait for us to know ourselves 100% before we get into relationships. A lot of us understanding who we are is through the trial and error of having relationships and realizing, well, oh, why did that go so sour so quickly? It's like, oh, because this person was doing X, Y, or Z, and this is how I responded, and like this isn't healthy for me. Uh, so in the future, I need to gravitate more toward this characteristic and express this side of me. And so in this whole idea that we have to love ourselves entirely and like be fully integrated into our self of, sense of self before bringing somebody else into our life, you know, that's just unrealistic, and that's not, uh, I think, even necessary uh, to do, or even if it was practical. Um, mm-hmm. And so just trying to be the best authentic person that we can and have the best insight into our authentic selves and to be able to communicate that. Um, And so we aren't building up resentment over time because we really want to express this certain characteristic or this certain interest, um, whether it's trivial or or for something much more meaningful that that resentment will grow and that will come out in very unhealthy ways, either trying to get whatever unmet need met in secret or kind of outside the scope of the relationship, whether that is pursuing another relationship um, or just engaging in, you know, a a secretive behavior. I remember when I was doing therapy, uh, a couple's conflict would be because uh, the dude had like this secret uh, um, fantasy football uh, league. And I think that was even <laughs> incorporated into some movie. I'm drawing a blank. Paul Rudd was in it. Cause he was the guy. Oh, it was, this, um, this it was knocked up. <laughs> knocked up. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, I remember seeing that. I was like, Holy shit. I had a therapy client like that. And so this must be a common occurrence so <laughs> of not being able to express yourselves authentically to the point where you feel like you, those needs don't go away. So you just have to find secretive ways to, um, meet those needs and secrecy is going to be a relationship to destroyer. You can have privacy, but the difference is secrecy. Your partner doesn't know at all. You're intentionally keeping them in the dark. Privacy, they kind of understand what you want and and do, but you don't have to disclose it. Like every time there's a certain degree of privacy around the behavior. Um, So in order to be authentic, to express your needs, your wants, um, and then, you know, if that expression is always met with belittling or invalidation or or lack of support or, um, just kind of forcing you into position to subjugating yourself to the other person, then these hopefully are, are signs that, okay, this relationship isn't right for me. I need to find somebody that, that, that does support me and my true sense of self, and I can be my true sense of self in this relationship. I think what you brought up earlier is really interesting about how it's often not even a sexual thing that people are hiding that destroys a relationship. It's just a thing that takes someone's time that they are hiding and is taking emotional energy away from their partner that could be easily solved by just talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. And even if it is sexual, um, recovering from that as as a couple, what I would see clinically is that the, the specifics of the sexual behavior are... I mean, they're, they're important, but they're less important than the betrayal that there is a secret involved. So it wasn't the fact that they were fucking so-and-so. It was the fact that they were doing that without the other partner knowing at all. 
So it was the secrecy. Mm-hmm. And they had to find out in some very painful way, probably. Yeah, absolutely. And that discovery of how shattering the trust that is and can that even be rebuilt? Oftentimes it can't be and the relationship is over, even though they try to hang on to it, try to rebuild. It's just too shattered uh, to kind of get back to a, a trusting place where a healthy relationship can be. And uh, again, that can be sexual and can be very non-sexual too. And so we think that if it's non-sexual that, oh, it doesn't really matter, I can do this uh, in secrecy. But this is a part of your life that is obviously important that you're hiding from your partner. And there may be very valid reasons why you're hiding it, because that if you were to bring it up, it would be kind of shot down quickly. But that should be an indication that this relationship is not right for you. But uh, a lot of times we just kind of go down the path of least resistance, and then it kind of gets to this catalyst at some point of a discovery or a disclosure, and then all the secrets come to surface, and then they kind of have to deal with the aftermath math of that. So authenticity can be the, the, the best way to kind of skirt going down that, that path as best as possible. Well, I certainly love that authenticity has been the theme of this entire conversation. That was uh, very coincidental and completely unplanned, but I love it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Is there anything that you have coming up that you would like to promote or plug or anything like that? Uh, nothing specific coming up. Um, I'm on social media, Instagram and Twitter is where I'm most active at Dr. Sprankle. And then my website, drsprankle.com is where that Scarlet Letters blog, um, is that we were mentioning earlier, but, um, yeah, just my online presence is pretty much all I'm doing right now. Awesome. Well, this was a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Of course. This episode of Hot-Blooded was hosted, written, and produced by me, Kat Jones. It was edited by Evan Dulaney, and the theme song was written by Jordan Olds. The logo was made by Corey Largent, who goes by Insane Clam Pasta on Instagram, and additional graphics were made by Jonathan Amaya. You can follow Dr. Eric Sprankle on all social media at Dr. Sprankle. That's D-R-S-P-R-A-N-K-L-E. To learn about the show, head to hotbloodedpodcast.com. And if you have any comments, concerns, or love letters for me, you can send them to me at hotbloodedpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, and see you next time.